immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Immersive Audio Podcast. My guests today are Uli Skuda and Philipp Eibel. Uli is a Toynmeister and is a head of Sound Lab Group in the audio department at Fraunhofer, where he researches 3D audio. Philipp is a researcher engineer at Fraunhofer, specializing in next generation audio and the development of NGA production tools. Uli, Philip, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. Let's start with the beginning of your careers. How did you get into the audio? Uli. After school, I already knew that I wanted to do something with audio because like technology and being creative was always attractive to me. I was playing in bands and um, so I thought it would be good to like gain experience first in like doing some jobs at TV and broadcast production. So I did a few jobs there, very low profile, like a driver for film production, doing catering until I finally got a position as like a second boom operator just to get insights and to learn a little bit how things work in that industry. And then after that, I studied at the film university in Potsdam. And that was a very inspiring time for me because I learned a lot and um, it changed my view on things that, for example, um, any sound can have a meaning or should have a meaning and can have a purpose. And even any change to a sound or any alteration to a natural sound can be used for something. And that was very important for me because I tried to stick to that philosophy until today. So during the university, I did recordings, mixes for film, music, band recording, orchestra recording. And after that university, I was a freelancer in Berlin for a few years. I did um, some projects with the university, um, some film production, film sound, radio, a little bit. Um, and then I decided to move on and I came here to Fraunhofer IIS in Erlangen, that's in uh, South Germany. And yeah, that has been 10 years ago, a little bit more. And since then, I just stuck here and yeah, work here and enjoy working here at the Fraunhofer IS in Erlangen, Bavaria. Philip, how about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think the original motivation probably was rather similar. Um, I always liked music and playing guitar and played in bands. And I think most people who do that at some point find themselves trying to record some of their songs. And uh, I had no idea how to do it. And so I just started playing around with it. And at some point after school, I decided I'd actually maybe want to learn something about it and not just have a device and press buttons and see what works. And so I did um, a one-year program of an audio school in Regensburg and then went on to study in Salzburg. And after that, I did a couple of internships, one of them at the Bayerische Rundfunk in production for a radio station there. And uh, yeah, afterwards they offered me a job and I took it. And so I worked in radio for a couple of years in Munich, did some live jobs on the side when something came up, yeah, music stuff, whatever was offered basically. And yeah, after a couple of years of that, I decided I 
should probably uh, do a master's degree as well. And I started doing that on the side, going back and forth from Munich to Amberg to um, work on the weekends and in vacation time and study the rest of the time. Then I think a year after that, I felt like doing something else for a change and uh, found the job at Fraunhofer and it was something else. And so I moved to Erlangen as well. Been here for three and a half years now. Yeah, it's a, a very um, wide variety of things we're working on. So it doesn't get boring easily. I always wanted to ask somebody who works at Fraunhofer, what is the culture? I appreciate it's a huge institute that is working in across loads of industries. So it's uh, not necessarily anything to do with audio, but talking about audio department specifically, how would you describe your collective and the kind of the work culture within the department? Um, yeah, so working here is very interesting and a lot of fun because there's like plenty of people here and everyone brings his own history and his own background. So, for example, in my team, there is like people with film mixing background, broadcast background, such as Philip or general media design. So there's a specialist for everything and there is no like two people that have the same background. So it's clear that there's always someone to ask for and it's totally okay to ask because otherwise we couldn't do our daily work. So there's, I guess, nothing that you can do alone and on your own because you always are dependent on like a team member or someone from another group. Sometimes you need a programmer that can fix code for a software or you need uh, something else like a PR and marketing person to help designing a flyer or a logo for a software. Um, so you just have to go out of your office and like go to another office and then you find people with a big variety of special skills. And this is what I enjoy a lot because like all the teams are interdisciplinary. And of course, that brings along a lot of discussion sometimes and because everyone has different ideas and different approaches to things. But this is what makes it inspiring and interesting. And this is where ideas come from. If people like with different background are thrown at a problem and maybe then they have ideas that you didn't have because you are blocked by your views that you have. So this is what makes us the research institute. Um, and this is what brings new ideas and uh, progress, basically. Like Uli hinted at, we're always very enthusiastic about discussing topics as well. And this is actually something that's uh, suffered a little bit through all of the home office things, because I think we as a group had uh, we tend to have long and passionate discussions about things and it's not always very fruitful sometimes it gets too long but as Uli said that's in the end where some knowledge is generated if people have different opinions but in the end are all working towards the same goal so you you try to include all the knowledge that you have available it, it can sometimes get exhausting as well but uh, it's it's part of it and it also makes it interesting and it's a great way of learning for oneself as well Excellent. Thank you for sharing. Well, uh, without further ado, I want to go straight to a hot topic. Our hot topic today is MPEG H. It's something I wanted to talk about for a very long time. And finally, I have two experts who can have a discussion about all important aspects in relation to this piece of technology that some of our listeners might not have come across properly, but 
for sure will in the future should they be involved with spatial audio professionally. So MPEG-H is one of the most advanced spatial audio codecs. Uli, Philip, can you explain to our listeners in most simple terms what is MPEG-H and how does it differ from other available codecs and formats on the market and what are the unique features of MPEG-H? Yeah, so um, the challenge is to stay brief and to <laughs> make it simple. So I will give my best. Um, MPEG-H is a standard designed for transporting audio and video from A to B. And the audio part of that is MPEG-H audio. And that in specific has been designed and developed for broadcast and streaming applications. It is called a next generation audio system. A next generation because there is like a few things, a few major differences compared to legacy audio codecs. So MPEG-H audio is, um, first it's an audio codec. So that means you can transport a lot of audio with very low bit rates. This is important um, for streaming, for example, if you don't have like a very good internet connection or if you just have to save your bits for the important things. And on top of just being a bit efficient codec, MPEG-H offers some um, features and some very advanced functionalities to use. And um, most important, there would be channels, for example. Channel is a known thing. Um, with MPEG-H, you can transport stereo 5.1, but also 5.1 plus 4 or 7 plus 4, for example. And that would be immersive audio reproduction formats or layouts or 3D audio. So you can have immersive audio for consumers at home, not only for the cinema and the big theaters, but also for everyone at home who has like a soundbar, AV receiver or whatever. So immersive sound is one big thing of that um, MPEG-H audio system. Another one is in contrast to audio channels, you can use object-based audio, so audio objects, and uh, that is new as well, because with audio objects, you can create certain metadata and that metadata can help to be flexible on the reproduction side. So one basic example, for example, can be um, if the dialogue becomes an audio object and has like a set of metadata, you can create a default broadcast mix for like a film soundtrack, for example, and you can have the same mix with uh, the only difference that the dialogue is boosted by 3db, for example. And then the user, with the help of the metadata, he can see that there is like two presets available, the default mix and the default mix with 3db hotter dialogue. And the user can switch between both presets, for example. So he can decide which one to listen to. And that may be a small change, only like 3db for dialogue, for example, but that is very uh, helpful and a big step for the older people, for example, because this is what like a big um, topic in society is in Germany these days. And I guess in uh, most of European countries that um, the society grows older and there's more older people who have problems with the current mm -hmm. TV program, understanding dialogue, and they wish to have the speech clearer. And by just offering them a dialogue plus preset, so this is how we call it, um, they have the chance to participate for broadcast programs in a way they could not do before. So this is um, what we call interactivity with these objects. There's tons of other things that you can do with interactivity. I'm sure we will talk about that later. And um, maybe the last thing to mention here as a big 
advantage of MPEG-8 is that one audio stream is sent to any device. So you just produce one mix and that is encoded with MPEG-8 and that goes to a mobile phone, a tablet, a laptop, a TV set, a set-top box, a soundbar, an AV receiver, or even into cars. And um, depending on the capability of the reproduction system, it is just rendered in the best possible way, depending on how many speakers are available and what the playback situation is. So you don't have to adopt your mix for binaural reproduction, and you don't have to make a near-field mix and one that is like suitable for small uh, flat-screen TVs. Um, you just have one mix, and the metadata supports playback on any device that has an MPEG-H decoder implemented. I hope that was simple enough. <laughs> we can go into detail uh, later on. You know, when we use terminology such as formats, we typically refer to maybe something like a stereo or, or ambisonic file or, or surround 9.1. Codec is something else. C codec is more like a container that contains the formats. And that's very important to make that um, differentiation because, yeah, as you pointed out, format is a very diffuse word that can be used for many different things. And depending on your background, um, you understand a different thing by saying a format. So it can be a file format such as WAV or MP3 AAC. It can be a speaker configuration like stereo 5171. A format can be um, the way how it is encoded. And format can also um, refer to how it is reproduced. So you can have a 7 plus 4 mix being reproduced in a big event location with a big PA, for example, for a hundred of people. You can have the same thing reproduced at home with your AV receiver. And that makes it, in my point of view, at least a two different reproduction situations. And that would be two different formats as well, because they are just different. We could try maybe to use... Uh uh, layout more as a word here when we refer to speaker layouts maybe that would help a little bit to clear up what we're talking about in a certain situation because uh, you're right there is a lot of difficult vocabulary that I think often is understood very differently by different people I mean just think of uh, audio objects I think it's one of those topics a lot of people talk about object-based audio but I often get the feeling that most people don't know what that actually means and or have a different understanding of that maybe let's put it that way there are some overlaps where same term means more than one thing and sometimes multiple things and it can get really confusing and hence I'm trying to kind of assimilate what terminology is relevant and how to understand it and navigate it within the context of MPEG gauge. It's a very powerful codec. So obviously we, we already um, see some key advantages and unique qualities of this technology, such as efficiency in terms of data streaming, very uh, high level of flexibility, a huge focus on accessibility and kind of object-based media this is exactly where object-based audio uh, kind of clashes with, with a different concept, which we'll come back and talk in more detail. But what else? So um, more in-depth, I mean, we could probably go in-depth in a lot of different directions. One thing that I maybe wanted to just uh, emphasize a bit more, because Uli 
just said it the way that somebody would say who who's very used to it. Um, the whole uh, accessibility thing, Dialog Plus, that static offset on a speech component, for example, is just the simplest way of doing it. And also it's something that is done entirely via metadata that I wanted to point out because you could, of course just create two different mixes and transmit them both. And one of them has the louder dialogue compared to the other or the higher signal to noise ratio uh, in terms of dialogue versus ambience. But the benefit of doing it via metadata is that obviously you don't have to retransmit the same audio or the same number of audio signals twice just to have a little bit of a change. So doing that just saves a lot of bandwidth, which of course means uh, saves money for the streaming service providers who also have to make sure that the end user can actually receive the stream in the end or same for broadcast. And, and it's really important and we don't really think about these kind of things twice, but considering the climate change and all the implications that come with that and the kind of global efforts to make a difference and potentially be carbon neutral, data exchange efficiency, you know, has a cost. And uh, having any improvement in that regard has a positive effect. And we need to be thinking about it, especially when it comes to the, the quantities of data that is being created and stored and exchanged today. It's absolutely huge. Yeah, especially if, um, let's look at a, like a video-on-demand streaming service. I mean, it's it's normal today that a program is available in maybe five, maybe 20 different languages. And um, of course, I mean, the mix is being made for each of these languages, but you don't need necessarily transmit all of these um, to the user if he wants to switch from, let's say, German to English. You can just have... A, different dialogue object and then just with the metadata you can like exchange the dialogue object of course it's not always that simple that it's just a mono object for dialogue i mean for the more the high value productions dialogue can be more than just mono that's clear but if you think about like a news broadcast or um, events like the european song contest this is what we like um, support for a few years now and there's more than 50 different languages being produced and With Epic Age, you can just pack like a handful of languages into one program and you don't have to transmit like the entire immersive mix plus dialogue for each um, language that you want to send to the air. There's another big element to Epic Age is that it's open standard. And um, I really think we need to put into perspective in terms of what is proprietary uh, format or codec versus something that is open standard and is accessible to other entities in terms of taking it on board and utilizing for the, for their services. For example, music streaming OTT service. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that it is an open standard um, basically means it's accessible for everyone who's interested. I mean, we have to um, differentiate between open standard and open source. Of course, it's not like open source and for free, but it's open standard and any company who wants to make a product with MPEG-H or for MPEG-H is free to do so. So that's the idea behind that MPEG standardization activities, um, that there is not only one company or one tool to produce a content with, but that there is a variety and that there's competition among the tools. So 
if you look at the production tools, for example, that is something that Philip is heavily involved with um, last years. Um, our idea or our vision is that there is like many different manufacturers who offer tools to produce Epic Age content. And these tools, they are allowed to be different. Um, they can be addressing music production or sports production or whatever. They just can be different. If that would be a proprietary standard, then there is one tool to produce with and that's it. And then all the producers um, are dependent and have to pay that one price and can only use that one tool. And um, with Ambic Age, there is different softwares available and they can be different in price and features and usability and whatever. Um, but if you look at audio production in general, like um, compressor plugins or EQ plugins, I don't know if it's like a thousand or a million EQ plugins that you can have and you can buy, but every year there's new EQ plugins coming to the market and there's people buying it because there just is a market and there is a need to have different tools for different situations. And that's the same with the open standard and package. I'm wondering if we should even address it now because it already takes a bit of a detour from what we're talking about right now. But um, the understanding of what is spatial audio, I think there's not one opinion on it. And I've also had passionate discussions about this with friends. For example, is it spatial audio if you transmit a pre-binauralized stereo mix and it's just two channels? And is it spatial just because it's rendered into the audio? And in contrast to that, if another option would be the uh, end device rendering where you actually have all the channels and objects available right till the end and then the device decides what's the best way of interpreting this information, which then allows for playback on multiple platforms. Like you could play it back binaurally, but I could also play it back on my immersive speaker setup or you could enable things like uh, head tracking or uh, interactivity, which only works if the data is still available on the consumer side. And um, yeah, it's it's a very difficult field, I think, but uh, it's something that I think always needs to come up. I think what you're mentioning is very important. And uh, I think uh, a lot of people have been asking that question themselves and within the community, because it is an important question. There's multiple ways of looking at it. The way you approach the question is very much from kind of engineering and scientific standpoint. We also need to look at everyday consumers who probably by now, the only way they associate spatial audio with is with a brand of Dolby. And to them, spatial audio is Dolby, but obviously it's not the case. I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, have much broader perspective on the situation. Everyday user can just be confused by all these, you know, marketing terms rather than looking at the question from from more fundamental standpoint, like you just did. Perhaps spatial audio of the future is something that is very adaptive and can just recognize your setup, your environment your personal preferences and adapt itself and give you a rendition of its best possible version, you know, immersive version of itself within that moment. And maybe that's kind of the ultimate way where, where we're heading into the future. And I feel like MPEG-H is definitely is a tool or a technology that is very much looking and has been going in that direction. 
I think uh, sometimes this whole um, marketing label stuff is doing the entire immersive audio topic a disservice just by putting so many different things under one hood, which makes it easy to sell because everybody knows a word really easily. But I think it makes it difficult for also for me as a consumer to to actually know what I'm getting. Like um, you want to listen to uh, immersive music on your speaker setup at home, on an immersive speaker setup. There's lots of different ways of getting immersive music, but there's not that many different combinations of services and devices that can play that back on your speaker setup. It's not trivial. And I think that for many uh, not technical people, but just people who want to enjoy music in immersive formats, is I, I would not be surprised if many people give up at some point on trying to do that because it's just it's not easy, simply put. Maybe to add one more thing on what Philip said is, um, I think... That's my personal opinion, um, that it's good that there is competition and that there's, I mean, there's not only MPEG-H and Dolby Atmos, there's other companies or there's other balls on the field as well, which I think is good because that shapes it quicker or sharpens what actually is needed and what can be done. And that's good to bring things forward. I think it's important that people on the production side know what they are working with and that they Like critically ask what's being produced, what is being delivered, what's being received at home. And this is something where we try to be open when it comes to how many channels, how many objects are transmitted or how many things can you put into a stream. I'm not so sure about other formats um, because people tend to think, and that is maybe in the nature of audio engineers, that um, we love to look at fancy meters and LED graphs going up and down and every green flashing light is good and the red one is bad without listening or thinking about it sometimes. And this happens uh, if you look at the panner, for example, a 3D panner, and the more colored balls we see flying around, the better it seems to be. <laughs> many people actually believe like that if they see like 128 colored balls flying around, that 128 balls are being transmitted to the user and they don't know or they are not being told and they don't ask for that at what point it's broken down in a way that you don't have control about it anymore. And I would prefer to have control on that process and be able to uh, monitor at least the process. I mean, obviously you cannot transmit so many objects and it doesn't make sense if, I mean, for the reasons that we mentioned that you have bandwidth to take care of. So what, um, how many objects, how many channels a user actually needs at home and where is the point to go from many to a few and uh, who should have control on that um, process? This is what I think um, producers should look at more sharply these days. Yeah, certainly. It's, it's definitely a different view on the situation and it's much broader. It's thinking about the context and thinking about the end user Uh, before in a wider context rather than focusing on kind of a nitty-gritty of technicalities. For anyone who's just really curious about what is MPEG-H, what does it sound like in the real world, so to speak, what is the easiest way for anyone to go and access content with MPEG-H online? Or is it not quite straightforward as that? Is it uh, available in certain countries, certain uh, broadcast services? 
Um, I mean, one of the easiest ways would be to go to South Korea because there for a few years now, um, MPEG-H is the only uh, standard used for UHD TV broadcast. So there it is on air 24-7. And that's for, I don't know how many years now, but quite a few years. But of course, it's not so easy to go to South Korea, especially not these days. But um, there is, for example, a music service, Sony 360 Reality Audio, that I'm sure everyone heard about. That's an object-based music service from Sony. And that is based on the MPEG-H audio codec as well. So they use um, MPEG-H as a codec. They use the object part of it, for example. Um, and you can just hook into your Amazon title or Deezer account and just check for that uh, 360RA service. And that's MPEG-H as well. Um, yes, Sony decided to use MPEG-H as a transmission format, basically, for their object-based music format. And it's uh, maybe an example for what Uli said earlier about it being an open standard and developers or uh, content providers being able to kind of pick and choose the different elements. In this case, Sony decided to create their own production tools for it, and they decided to just focus on the object-based audio part. So while MPEG-H itself has uh, channels, object, and ambisonic support, Sony decided to go object only, which is a fair choice, I guess. Uh, that gives them a bit more room for to use more objects in the transmission. But they sacrificed some of the broadcast-specific fe features for it, um, Some of the interactivity features we talked about uh, are just not in the subset of MPEG-H that Sony is using. And they are using the codec, so the actual uh, data reduction part of it. But as I said, they chose to create their own content creation tools, the Sony 360 Reality Audio Creation Suite, I think it's called. Creative or Creation, one of those two, um, which came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was announced in January, but then it took a while, but it's out now. And they decided to use their own binaural renderer on the reproduction side, Yeah, which, which is fair. There's no, no mandatory renderer for binaural monitoring that is attached to MPEG-H. We do have one, but uh, it's up to the service provider in the end to select which parts of MPEG-H and the whole ecosystem they want to use for themselves or want to Uh, use existing products and where they want to use their own developments for whatever reason. I'm just curious, are there any hardware dependencies in order to access this specific codec? So um, there needs to be a decoder in the device, of course, that can decode MPEG-H bitstreams and that can either be hardware or software. I mean, even if it's in a hardware, it's on a chip somewhere as a software. So um, There is many devices out there like soundbars, AV receivers, for example, where it's implemented on the chip, on the firmware, so to say. And this, of course, is necessary to decode MPEG-H bitstreams. And this is obviously the case for the 360RA story as well. And another big component, obviously, to all of this is head tracking, which makes the whole experience of listening to music and immersive formats takes a whole new level. I was wondering if you had anything to add in relation to your experience um, using Ampergage with head tracking and if you could give any particular examples in what context and how you've uh, you've done it so far. Definitely. So head tracking is a thing that 
I love a lot because um, it just adds a new dimension to everything that has been there. I remember times where I played around with like um, hardware head trackers that are sticked to the headphones connected with USB cables. And then there was like a few different softwares running on the computer and translating the data to OSC or MIDI data running into some plugin. So it was a very, um, yeah, very challenging way to have tracking like a few years ago. I mean, there was a Smith Realizer device, which I like a lot because it just works great. That's um, a hardware thing where you can connect the headphone and then into the hardware device, you can just like plug in like HDMI, for example, 7.1 audio or even higher. And then it just does a binauralization with head tracking and that works very well. And maybe just to add to that, the idea of the device is basically to be able to have your mixing room in your headphones. So typically you would profile your mixing room or whatever environment you work in and then use that profile for the binaural rendering. So, and that was available like maybe 10 years ago already. And with object-based audio now, um, we have all these objects and the like the single sounds and their position on the consumer side. So I was very like excited to see as the Bluetooth um, earbuds have been released um, that can easily be connected to mobile devices. And we have um, apps, for example, where we can just like um, for a demo, bring MPEG H content to a phone and play back on earbuds. Um, because if you have an immersive mix and head tracking, And you slightly move your head that immediately changes everything because the soundstage and the positions of musicians, for example, they just stay constant. So like with stereo headphones or with pre-binauralized audio, such as like dummy head recordings as we had in the 60s, if you turn your head, the entire soundstage and everything that you hear turns with you. So the entire stage, um, the musicians and the band, the orchestra, is making every movement that your head is doing as well. If you have head tracking and object-based audio, it just stays stable. And that immediately pulls all the audio objects out of your head and places them in front of you. And you can like slightly turn your head or heavily turn your head and they just stay there in the room. And that makes a very, I mean, I wouldn't say realistic because in the end it's all illusion or it's, I mean, we don't, try to copy nature, but we just want to have like a very plausible image of that. But that um, head tracking feature is something that really moved um, binaural audio up by at least one dimension, if not by even two. The benefit with, uh, if you have object-based audio uh, transmitted to headphones in the end and you use a binaural renderer that supports this uh, object interface, then it lets you render the object positions directly, if that makes sense, and not uh, through an intermediate step that would first uh, render the object positions to a virtual speaker layout and then render these virtual speaker positions to your HRTF or binauralize them in uh, whatever way. And having the objects directly leaves you with the maximum resolution as well. And that, I think, especially comes out when head tracking is also involved. Maybe to go one step back, what I would like to like add as basic um, information. I mean, an object is an audio signal and there is 
metadata attached to it, like coordinates, x, y, z, or whatever. And um, so there is a definition at what time, at what place that audio signal should be reproduced. And this is what the producer is doing when he's making a mix. And all of that is transmitted. And then in the rendering device, it's like being rendered at that place. And as Philip said, it makes a difference if the renderer really can render the object at that given position compared to it needs to be pre-rendered to a speaker layout first, and then that speaker layout, these channel signals will be binauralized later on. And um, the beauty of making that or using objects for that and not doing the pre-binauralization is that still the same bitstream can hit a soundbar and a V receiver or something different, which is not possible with pre-binauralized signals. So for that, you always need to produce and transmit two different signals, like the binauralized one and the, let's say, the channel-based signal for AV receivers or soundbars. If you really have an object-based approach, such as Epic H, it's just one bitstream, one mix, and that can serve like binaural and non-binaural playback situations. If you're working on MPEG-H mix with metadata creation and all of that in any production tool, then you would monitor that through the binaural renderer that would be included in that production tool that you're using. Um, for example, if you're using the Sony 360 tools, they offer options of loading HRTF files and uh, you could just import whatever you use. If you use our production tools, uh, we have our own binaural rendering in the production tools as well. But that's uh, in both cases, that's just the monitoring. That is not written to the export in any way. It's just for the producer to listen through. And then, of course, you have different sets of metadata that are specific to binaural rendering, such as we have a direct-to-headphone flag, for example, which excludes a signal from binauralization. So you could, for example, I mean, you have a music mix maybe, and then uh, you have your kick and your snare. Uh, you don't want to put them into the room in rendering, but you want to have the in-head localization for those. You can just send them to the production tool as their own component, and there set the metadata flag so it's excluded from the binauralization, just these signals and that, of course, is only applied or that only makes any difference if a binaural rendering is interpreting that metadata. If a playback through speakers doesn't make any sense to have it, so it's just not applied because it's a concept that doesn't exist for the speaker-based playback. Let's talk about uh, MPEG-H authoring tools. Can you give us an overview of the technology ecosystem software and the capabilities that come with it? Um, yeah, the first thing, I mean, you just uh, added software because the first thing I was going to say is you have to differentiate between hardware-based authoring tools that are mostly uh, for broadcast live broadcast situations and uh, large broadcasters and the post-production side of it, um, which is software typically. And yeah, maybe let's focus on the, on the software part of it uh, for the hardware. Maybe you can just say that there is hardware for that and... Uh, yeah, you could have somebody uh, spend an entire evening just talking about that as well. But uh, for the software part, we started creating our own MPEG-H authoring software a couple of years ago just because we wanted to have a tool that is always 
at the forefront of what we can do. We wanted to be able to uh, decide on our own speed of implementing new features that we wanted to have for, for certain reasons. But the main idea is not to for us to make these tools long-term, but to just enable a market where there's multiple tools that people could use for authoring. One little thing I wanted to add maybe because... Um, Authoring uh, is a word in that context that we use a lot, but I think it's not necessarily common knowledge what we mean by that. Um, so if I talk about MPEG-H authoring or uh, metadata authoring, that's a step that becomes important with object-based audio, of course, because the audio object could be just one channel of audio, but the receiving device uh, needs to be told what to actually do with it. Where in space is this sound coming from? And maybe what uh, what's the loudness of that object? And um, how does it move over time? That uh, requires some, some metadata. And creating that metadata is the, the authoring step. And of course, the object position example is just a very simple example. There's lots of metadata that is created, most of it under the hood, and you don't have to look at it every time, but downmix gains and all of these things. Um, loudness information on the content, the different interactivity options that there may be, all of that needs to be created at some point or not be created. It's uh, mostly optional. So um, there are different software tools that you could use. Um, we have just released the latest update of our MPEG-H authoring suite, which is a set of currently four different tools. And it contains a, an authoring plugin, which is the first step we did in that direction, I guess, when starting to develop this line of tools. And it uh, does so many things. We can maybe talk about that later. But uh, we also had people ask us for standalone software because in uh, certain environments, the person doing the authoring might not necessarily be the same person who creates a mix. It could still be just an immersive channel-based mix and that does not necessarily have to be rendered through the MPEG-H authoring plugin. But if you want to go on and distribute it via an MPEG-H workflow, you still need to add some metadata. And uh, so we created a a standalone tool is called the MPEG-H authoring tool. And it's very similar to the plugin, but uh, it's its own tool. Uh, you load a file into it, you do the authoring and then create an export. Yeah, that comes with certain benefits like direct file reading makes it a bit quicker, but also downsides because in a DAW, you always have access to lots of automation lanes and you can have timeline-based automation that uh, you don't with the standalone tool. The standalone tool can also work as a playback software for MPEG-H masters, uh, which is the thing that you before encoding. Then we also have something called the MPF player or MPEG-H production format player, which is also a player, but it includes video decoding and playback as well. So you could have uh, your audio and video and uh, use it for quality control uh, preview all of the interactivity things, preview the different downmixes or renderings for headphones, for speakers, all kinds of layouts. And last but not least, the latest tool we added to that suite is the MPEG-H conversion tool. So the MPEG-H conversion tool is meant to 
be an access point to the MPEG-H ecosystem, even if your mix or your delivery was not created in an MPEG-H authoring tool. So you could have your, uh, your Atmos ADM, drop it into the conversion tool, click a button, and uh, in the end you'll have an MPEG-H master file. That's our tools, and of course there's others as well. We already mentioned Sony. Maybe um, to add to that, um, to come back to the open standard uh, thing, um, this is our own tools to investigate how workflows could look like and... Um, just to um, see what of all these features are really important for what kind of use case. But there's also um, tools from um, other companies. Um, for example, Spatial Audio Designer from New Audio Technology is a plugin that is out for quite some time and that will have a release very soon. Um, so that's a third-party tool to be used in any door for MPKH authoring. And um, there will be... Other tools coming up as well um, with Blackmagic, DaVinci's Resolve, you can do that authoring as well. And if you look at all these tools, you will see that the features that they support and offer are different. And this is what we mean with Open Standard, that everyone can make his own approach on or can decide what to use from that toolbox, so to say. So tools that are focused on broadcast production, they will have different feature sets compared to tools that are focused on music production, for example, because just other things are important or not important. And this is why the different tools look differently and support different feature sets. But important is, as Philip said, that they are all compatible or the result that you generate with these tools, the MPEG-H master file or the MPEG-H ADM file, which is just an ADM file with the MPEG-H metadata inside, they are all compatible. So they can all be encoded to an MPEG-H bitstream and they can all be decoded by an MPEG-H decoder. And this is what the conversion tool makes so handy that um, no matter from what kind of tool your source material comes from, you can convert it to... MPF, which is the MPEG-H production format um, that has all the metadata inside, or you can convert from ADM to MPF or from MPF to ADM. And this way you are very flexible. And um, if you want to archive your production you with ADM, you have a nice file format. Well, again, this format word, um, but a nice file uh, that you surely can open in five or 10 years from now because that's important for content creators to be able to reuse their material to not to be um, in a closed environment where they cannot get out anymore because they are dependent on one single tool. And that's ADM, which is just the standard for next generation audio. So that's the next big thing. Or not the next big thing because it's available right now already. The current big thing. And like uh, Uli mentioned, it's uh, the ADM or B-Wave ADM is also an open standard, but there are still different flavors, so to speak, of uh, ADM. And some of them are not directly compatible, which sometimes just is a matter of different feature sets. And that's why the, the conversion tool is so important, because it actually can convert one into the other. And that finally makes ADM the kind of uh, exchange format that it is on paper, but in reality sometimes is not currently. I think most people who, who worked with ADM have had that experience at some point. 
And that's why it was important for us to offer this tool that is as simple as it could possibly be. Just like drag and drop a file, select the target format and hit a button. And then it, it converts it, adds loudness information as well. I hope that it makes ADM as useful as it should be. In simplest terms, for the benefit of our listeners, can you describe the function of audio definition model? And what are we talking about specifically when we say there are different flavors and interpretations of ADM, well, AAD models um, out there in, in the kind of in industry at the moment? ADM is a file format or is a method of saving data, um, audio data, and um, there is PCM audio inside, uh, but there's also metadata inside. And ADM describes how the metadata is arranged or what kind of metadata fields are available. And the ADM standard is something that many parties and organizations worked on. And it's a very huge, big monster thing because it's... Um, just very extensive and there's so many different metadata fields that you could use that there is somehow the need to cut it down again to a useful feature set. This is where we are today that there is a different flavors, so different profiles, so to say, um, or different subsets of all the ADM features that are available in theory. And that's the one that are most important, of course. Um, so to some extent, extent um, ADM is compatible between different competing audio systems. Um, if you look at channel-based 7 plus 4 mix, for example, that's perfectly convertible from one to the other. But there's also some inconsistencies in terms of, for example, with MPEG-H, if you have interactivity and if you have different languages inside with different text labels, for example, that the user can see on his TV, a menu that shows what settings are available, you cannot convert that to Dolby Atmos ADM because Dolby Atmos just does not support interactivity and has not that kind of object-based uh, features. And this is where you have to, yeah, now this is where you stumble across certain inconsistencies when it comes to converting the different ADM flavors. So in theory, everything is compatible. In practice, the important things are working. So you can always convert everything to MPEG-H ADM, for example, no matter where you come from. If you make use of all the MPEG-H features that are available, you cannot go to Dolby Atmos because their feature range is just much smaller, so to say. But still, ADM is an open standard. If you look at the metadata, you kind of can see what's inside and it will always be accessible. So if you produce now something and save it as ADM, it's made sure that you can still access the audio and the metadata in the future as well, which is important for content producers. Metadata seem to be at heart of these modern immersive audio formats. And the capabilities of metadata seem to increase year by year. What I'd like to talk to you about specifically in this case is the accessibility features, because I know you've been developing MPEG-H offering tools with accessibility features at heart, 
And I really enjoyed some of the demonstrations that you published online. And Uli, you've even mentioned a couple of practical examples earlier in the conversation as well. I'd like to just um, stay a little bit longer on this and and discuss uh, some specific accessibility features that um, became possible because of your specific functionality within the offering tools. And But also maybe you can share some anecdotes and some practical examples. How does it essentially help the end user and how does it make a world better in that sense? Maybe to start with an anecdote, um, there was an experiment um, with like object-based audio many years ago and um, they, I think it was a sports broadcast and they gave the users or the test subjects a slider and they could decide where to put the slider in terms of dialogue volume. I think the result was something like that 50% liked it a little bit lower than the default position and 50% of the test subjects preferred it above the default position. So that showed that for some situations, people just prefer different things when it comes to dialogue. And if we ask the sound designers, the composers for a film soundtrack, of course, all the sound design is very important. If we ask like uh, my... Mom, for example, she would say, well, I need to understand the dialogue and the language and I would like to kill all the music and all the explosions because I need to follow what the characters say, basically. So that's a little bit like <laughs> exaggerated. But um, there is a lot of pe uh, people that are hard of hearing and that would like to have uh, more speech intelligibility. And this is where the object-based features are very helpful. Another thing or another practical example could be um, if you author your mix, you can set the metadata in a way that the user is allowed to basically grab the audio description object and move it like from the center position to the 90 degrees side position. And if you would have like a seven plus four speaker layout at home, you would have the audio description coming from your side Whereas all the other dialogues that are like part of the movie that are not in the audio description stays in the front. So you spatially separate two different dialogue objects that have been like spatially at the same position. Originally, you can, with the help of interactivity, um, just move to the side or to the upper layer, for example. And this way, it's easier for everyone to just to separate the two different voices that are talking at the same time. So this is one of the examples how the activity features and how metadata can be used for accessibility. Yeah, that's interesting because um, I think probably for the first time what we see here is that the accessibility feature is presented in a form of spatial audio where spatial audio is kind of is being the tool here as opposed to you know just adjusting the levels for different components of the content, you know, the way it's delivered is is slightly different. Um, I was wondering if there are other creative examples how content creators could start looking at implementing accessibility features in, in these kind of novel ways that previously have been not even thought about. Maybe one thing that Philip mentioned before, the direct-to-headphone flag or feature is something where you can, if you have a mix that is binauralized, you can have, an, or you can tell an audio object not to be binauralized and If you imagine you have two voices and one is being binauralized in the center position in front of you and one is not being binauralized, so it's like in-head localization, um, it's very easy for everyone to separate both from another because they are 
rendered differently, you perceive it differently, like not only from different positions in space, but also they have a different texture or a different sound characteristic. Um, everyone who like listened to a phantom source on headphones knows that in-head localization, which is something that we want for some sound effects, by having the option of by normalizing an object or not, gives you um, two different layers where you can position sound effects or language, um, spoken words. And by that, you have like um, two different layers that it's easy to separate to um, to the listener. And by that, you can just build up your story in a different way um, because of that. I wanted to add maybe in terms of accessibility, um, I'm not sure if it, it qualifies as uh, especially creative use, but we have trials with different broadcasters about a system to automatically create a Dialogue Plus preset. So the preset with the boosted Dialogue track, but uh, not using a static offset on that Dialogue track, but actually a dynamic ducking of the rest of the mix of the music and effects and ambience. And the interesting thing about that is that this ducking is also transported via metadata. So it's it doesn't take up additional audio tracks for a duct mix versus a mix that is maybe not ducked as much, but it's also created on the end device. And by doing it via a metadata stream, we can also have multiple ducking sequences in the same transmission. So you could have one that uh, works for the German dialogue option, one that works for the English dialogue option. And those would be applied depending on the selected language and the selected preset. So there's a lot of um, intelligence and uh, logical connections that you can make to provide many, many different options without actually retransmitting redundant audio material. I know it always sounds terribly complex and people are often afraid that it would be too much for the user, but I think um, also, again, using metadata... There's many options that you can set as defaults and then the the receiving device would pick the preferred option based on, on some defaults that were set once. And it's also something that we're experimenting with uh, in collaboration with broadcasters and I think can offer a lot of accessibility features at a low effort for the content producers. And if it's lower in effort, it means that it can be produced for more content and in the end reaching a higher coverage of accessibility features over the entire program range of maybe a TV station, for example. I know that asking um, any questions about the future from Fraunhofer is always tricky. But uh, nevertheless, um, I was wondering if if you guys could uh, give us just a bit of a general overview. Where do you see MPEG-H and everything that is associated with the new generation codec for spatial audio, including um, its adoption across the globe and including the, the tools that come with it? Where do you see it's heading in a in near or maybe even more distant future? How do you envisage for this to pan out and kind of what's in store uh, going forward? Well, I think we will see many more technologies that are based on next generation audio because we in the past or in like in the in the very 
close path. We've seen soundbars coming to the market that have not been there like 10 years ago. We have these Bluetooth headphones that have head tracking built in already or some processing. And uh, all these um, playback consumer devices enable to make use of um, next generation audio features. And so I think there will be more products that may be gadgets, they may be useful. What I hope and what I'm sure we will see is a lot of more of a lot of content being produced that make use of these features. There will be a lot of nonsense content that just wants to play around and wants to show off what objects or channels, immersive audio and everything, what that can do. But I think after that period, there will be a lot of serious content that really understood how to use that in a musical way or in a storytelling way to use an object or to use interactivity for music, for um, a radio drama, for example. So this is what I see in the future connected with that, a lot of different services that make just use of MPEG-H. I mean, now we have broadcast in South Korea, we have 360RA. I'm sure there will be more services um, that just use that system um, to come up with new products, new services that are exciting and entertaining. Yeah, I would basically uh, say lots of similar things. Um, I think personally, I'm a fan of having many speakers, but uh, having affordable 3D soundbars is definitely something that will enable more people to experience it and in in turn will motivate content providers to to offer more immersive music for example so i'm i'm happy that there are more options for for people who may have to look out for the spousal acceptance factor or whatever that uh, is called i hope that in the future will not be as buzzword focused as we are right now currently we as in the world of immersive audio and focus a bit more on what actually uh, counts for the consumer as in uh, what's played back what options do i have can i play back this immersive audio stream on speakers or is it just ready for headphones that kind of stuff i think that's very intransparent currently and makes it difficult for a lot of users that may not be super in depth or have the time to to research everything and i hope that the devices and services start working together a bit closer and that it will at some point just be choose your service choose your device plug it all together done that that would be great uh, one thing that i'm actually looking forward to is um uh, creatives working with the options that you have in interactivity or immersive audio during content creation because i think it might become very interesting if artists already think about that when they create music for example because yeah i think there's a lot of creative people out there and that could lead to some fun fun things to listen to in the end and guys and as we wrap up i'm gonna ask uh, the same question i always do Uli and Philip, can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career? I think I think it's important to listen to yourself in terms of when you feel like 
you need a change and uh, not be afraid of doing something different uh, once in a while because I think that helps to stay interested and motivated and but I think that's something that depends a lot on personal preferences and I know people who are happy to work the same job for a very long time and I know people who job hop a lot because they just want something new and interesting so I think knowing what type of person you are in that regards and following that maybe I think that's important that answer makes me sound a lot older than I am <laughs> I think um, besides what Philip said to listen to yourself and to, to, to know or to feel what your passions are um, I think it's helped me a lot to try to understand what the other person's are passionate about or where they are coming from, what perspectives they have when looking at things. So when I come back to my university times, for example, um, or when I'm like doing live mixes, if you try to put on the guitarist's um, glasses on the stage, what is he afraid of? What he want, What is it what he really wants and needs in that situation? Or the actor in the studio, the voice actor, or the director when you're doing a mix, um, when you try to understand why they decide the way they do, what they are afraid of, what they are hoping for, that helped me to, to understand people better and get into a closer communication with them. Because um, there's our field, I mean, not only in audio, but in research in general, there's always people from different directions and they talk about the same thing, but sometimes they use the same words, but they don't mean the same thing as we did today with the word format, for example. And sometimes I try to understand where they're coming from and that sometimes helps to see or to get a feel where you could have a misunderstanding that you are not aware of. One more thing I wanted to say, and that can be on camera as well. I mean, thanks for having us here. And I think it's amazing that, I mean, in the beginning you said it's like more, there's more than 50 episodes of that podcast. And I mean, having a podcast about a topic that seems to be very techy and very unsexy is one thing. But when there is like more than 50 episodes about that topic, that means or that tells me something that this is not a side topic that like some long haired guys talk about in dark corners of the pub, but that is something that there is really something about it and that there is a fuss. And uh, I, I think it's cool that there is such a podcast available and that you have so many like high-ranked persons and people talking about that because that just proves that um, immersive audio is not just a thingy, but it's like a big trend that it's worth to talk about for more than 50 episodes. And I uh, just wanted to thank you for that one. Excellent. Th thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Philip, Uli, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been very informative and I've learned a lot of stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. Thanks. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash Immersive Audio Podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Bjorn Jacobson. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. 
Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit 1618digital.com slash immersiveaudiopodcast to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.